Thank you for joining us today. We are excited that you came across this message. The sermon you are about to watch is from our series, Who is God? If you are joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. Well, I almost feel like we can give the benediction right now. God is amazing, isn't he? God is good. It is well with my soul. I don't follow Christ for the benefits package. If he does nothing else for me, he's done enough on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to meet me in Exodus chapter 34. Uh, if you are new with us, uh, we, are we are continuing on in our series on who is God. Uh, and so we are just walking through uh, this incredible text. Listen, I, I know all scripture is inspired. That is a true statement. No matter where you are in the Bible, God's spirit will speak to us from his word. But I believe uh, Exodus 34 is just a core text as it just draws us in, not just to what God does, but to who he is, the essence of who God is. And so no matter where you may be on the spiritual continuum tonight, you may be a church OG like myself. I grew up in church and I'll talk some about that. Uh, every time the doors of the church were open, uh, I was there. I was like, really saved, like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, anybody, any really saved people? Yeah, that's like three of us in Vegas here, but, uh, um, or you, you may call yourself, just say, hey man, this is my first time in church at all. I wouldn't even call myself a follower of Jesus Christ or watching online or whatever. I think this, this text is just so, so foundational to our faith. And it gives you a window into the very essence of who God is. So I just want to read it to us again. Nine verses. Pick me up in verse 1 of Exodus 34. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen through, uh, throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon that, uh, excuse me, opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is our God, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And that's just the right response. When you really see who God is, you worship and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. 
for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Father, would you, would you meet us? We, we've already met with you. We've told you it is well with our soul. We've worshiped you. You've heard from us. Now we need to hear from you. God, would you speak to us clearly, plainly, persuasively, powerfully. God, save someone's soul. Someone in the room tonight, Lord God, someone watching online, they, they are a follower of you, but they've wandered away, they've strayed. Draw them back, not by law, not by guilt, not by shame, but by your mercy and grace. Do it, Father God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. November 22nd, 1963, um, you know, if you remember your history, that's an important date in American history. That's the, that's the day when um, our beloved president, JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, was, was assassinated. And of course, our whole, our whole nation was, was grieving. We were in an emotional tailspin. Um, Elijah Muhammad, who uh, at the time was the leader of the nation of Islam, if you understand anything about the nation of Islam, um, nobody liked them outside of the nation of Islam. Uh, they were kind of a stench, and so Elijah Muhammad understood that Dr. King, excuse me, um, uh, JFK has been assassinated, and so he gave strict orders. No one is to speak on this matter. No one is to say anything disparaging. And then the face of the nation of Islam decided to rebel against the orders of Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, um, in front of a whole group of media. He spoke about it and he said this is, that JFK's assassination was a matter of the chickens coming home to roost. And what he meant by that is, in his perception, uh, white people in his perception had been violent. And so you kind of live by the sword, you, you die by the sword. It was an ill-timed statement. Uh, it was an egregious thing for him to say. The Elijah Muhammad, uh, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, hears about it. And uh, man, what does he do? He immediately cuts off Malcolm X. Their relationship is done. And most people will tell you that it is because of that statement that Malcolm X would end up having his own life taken. So the message there was you mess up. The relationship is over. I mean, we're, we're, we're done. I told you not to do something. You, you did it anyway. We're through. So when we come to our text, I mean, if you're reading this text for the first time and you pick it up a few chapters earlier, you understand that the nation of Israel had committed an egregious sin. We'll unpack it a little bit. They, they had crafted a, an idol. They had actually worshipped that idol. They had actually said it was that idol that had delivered them uh, from their enemies. And man, it, it's an egregious sin. And so you're reading this for the first time. We come to our text and 
And, and you're like, man, what's God going to do? It just feels as if their relationship is in the balance. They, they have just done a really wrong thing. Is God going to turn his back on them? And then you're blown away just kind of making our way through the first nine verses. And God pretty much responds by saying, no, 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 no. I'm not turning my back on them. My presence is going to go with them. And in fact, here's why. It's not because they can do enough quiet times to atone for their sin. It's not because of their giving record. It's not because of the fact that they're at the temple and high and holy days. It's for one reason and one reason only, my mercy and grace. So, so your relationship is preserved by mercy and grace. I, I, I love it. I love it. Uh, it was C.S. Lewis, um, he, that great mid-20th century philosopher and writer. He, he just kind of walked into a pub one day, and as he's walking into a pub, there's a, there's a group of people talking, and all he hears them talking about is they're, they're bantering back and forth. What makes Christianity so different from all the other world religions? And again, if you're here tonight, you're watching online, and you're, you, you're going, I, I'd love to know the answer to that. C.S. Lewis, hearing them bantering about, wondering what makes Christianity so different, he, he just jumps right in there. Not a whole lot of context. He shrugs his shoulders and says, oh, oh that's easy. You want to know what makes Christianity different? Grace. God's unmerited favor. Grace. As Matt Chandler says, grace means you didn't eat your dinner, but you still get desserts. Grace. Every other world religion is predicated on works. That's the operating system. We've all been there, man. A God-forsaken hour on Saturday morning, knock on the door. It's two, uh, two, two individuals. I open it up. And, well, who are you? We're the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, come on in the house. And they sit down. Let me brew you some coffee. And I, I, I want to just kind of dig in. And, and I, I remember asking them one time, well, why are you here knocking on all these doors? And I remember one time they said to me, we're just trying to get into the uh, 144. 4,000. This is like the first class section of heaven. I, I go, well, who's managing this list, right? I'd love to know that. Who's got the list? Who's got the database? How many doors do you have to knock? At what point do you go, knocked on enough, I'm good? They can never get there. No, you got other world religions that says uh, in this life, if you do enough good things, you'll get reincarnated to a better self. The next iteration, you'll be a better individual living in a better neighborhood, making better money, but you got to make good choices right now. I just read a biography on, on Muhammad Ali, that, that, that great boxer, the self-proclaimed greatest of all time. And if you know anything about Ali, Ali had his own demons. He was a philanderer. And, and Ali, in a very vulnerable moment, uh, said, yeah, I, I believe in paradise. I'm trying to get into paradise. A person asked him, well, how do you get into paradise? He goes, well, there's this thing called a tallying angel. And this angel is keeping a list of all the bad things I do and, and all the good things I do. And, if, and I'm hoping that the good outweighs the bad so I can get in. Do you see the works mindset? Every other world religion works Christianity. 
grace. And we followers of Jesus, we forget that what gets us in grace is what keeps us in grace. The church of Jesus Christ, we've just, we just got a bad rep for, for not being very gracious people. So many churches have gone the way of cancel culture. The church of Jesus Christ, we, we blow this. I remember years ago reading Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And one of the first stories he tells, he, it's, it, he tells the story of a woman. She's a prostitute, true story, who's figured out she can make more money renting out her daughter in one night than she can make herself for the whole week. A group of Christians come up to her and they're sharing their faith and it's a good conversation towards the end. They invite her to church and here's her response. Church, why would I ever go there? They would only make me feel worse than what I already do. Unfortunately, in many cases, she's right. The church I grew up in, she would have been right. I grew up in a little chocolate church on the south side of Atlanta. Um, small little church, you know, a couple hundred people. We didn't have all this. Uh, we, we didn't have air conditioning, in fact. Uh, seriously, we, there was no central air. Our air conditioning was a little wooden stick uh, that had like a cardboard thing uh, stapled to it. Come on, go with me, chocolate people, all the chocolate people. Uh, it, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. It had a little cardboard thing nailed to the, nailed to the uh, little wooden stick. On one side was a picture of Dr. King, um, and, and on the other side was an advertisement for a funeral home. It's like August. I'm like, that's prophetic right there. Feels like I'm going to die. There was no AC at this church, and there was no grace. I'm closing my eyes right now. The visual I have of my pastor is just an angry man. And every sermon was just, just this beat down. And, and he just beat you down with law and never rescued you with grace. And you left every sermon just feeling like, man, I, 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 I just can't do enough, which is true. But you also left every sermon. It was these how-to messages. I, I can't do enough. So maybe if I do more. Maybe if I exerted my, God doesn't like me, I've messed up, and so what I have to do is I have to earn his approval. And that continued on. I went off to Bible college, very fundamentalist Bible college. I get to Bible college, and you couldn't go to the theater but you could rent rated R movies from Blockbuster. I just lost a whole bunch of y'all. I just lost a whole bunch of y'all. Blockbuster, renting movies. We actually walked. We didn't stream, okay? Anyways. The reason for that is they actually said the, the theater was sinful. There was no dancing. So if you got married during the semester and you had dancing at your wedding reception, someone would write you up, give you demerit right there in your wedding gown. Just a graceless kind of a thing. I was t telling this to, to, to one of my buddies, and I'm just kind of sharing this with one of my buddies, and he went to a fundamental school, a different one. He goes, oh, I can do you one better. There's a donor who donated money uh, to, to build a, a pool, but then donated extra resources to fill it up with concrete on the occasion that girls and guys were found in the pool together. 
So, so this is where I'm coming from. This is what I want, want you to see here and what this kind of did to me in my own experience. It's I discovered the most frustrating thing in life, trying to be good on my own terms outside of God's grace doesn't satisfy. In fact, trying to do good outside of God's grace leads to two kinds of people. Either you'll be a self-righteous, arrogant person or irreligious people who give up on the faith because it's too much of a burden for anyone to handle. Some of us, our kids are rebels because all they got from us was law. I'm just gonna give you more law, more law, more law, and they're sinking under the burden and there's at some point, sometimes the reaction is I'm gonna check out. I can't do it, so why even try? Others will be self-deceived and go, huh, I think I can actually do it. That doesn't lead to a humble person you wanna be around. That leads to a self-righteous, arrogant, narcissistic Pharisee who actually thinks that their goodness earns them credit with God. Now I know I'm in Vegas. So what I just shared over the last seven minutes doesn't connect with any of you. Because many of you in this room, my story's not your story. You didn't grow up in an environment where you're trying good things. In fact, if I can just kind of sum up the last couple of weeks or months for some of you, it's just, man, I'm just, I'm just doing all the bad stuff. I want you to notice a truism. Trying good things or trying bad things will never satisfy us. It is only when we try God, a God full of grace and mercy, where we find true satisfaction. Here's the crazy maker. All of us in this room, we come from two different streams. Man, I, I was out there, I was doing it, I was on drugs, I was just kind of doing all the crazy stuff. And then you got other people, you, 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 you just kind of dotted all your theological I's and crossed all your theological T's. Here's what the Bible says, even on your best days, your righteousness is as filthy rags. Both fail. Because the standard is Jesus. It ain't your behavior. So what are we to do? We come to our text, and I just want to walk us through three quick things that we're going to learn about God's grace and mercy. We come to our text, and again, in an amazing act, God has rescued his people. He's rescued them from Egypt. He's opened up the Red Sea. He's given them the law, which outlines their relationship. By the way, this is what God does with us. God, notice the order, liberated them first and then gave them the standard so that their obedience wouldn't be in the category of obligation, but delight. Had he given them the law first and says, here's 10 commandments, do these things, and then I'll open up the Red Sea, he would have made their emancipation predicated on their performance. God sets us free at the cross of Jesus Christ first. That's what he does first. 
And then he gives us his good commandments so that our obedience is not out of duty, but out of delight. So he rescues them, calls Moses to a closed door meeting. He gives them the law. I guess the people thought Moses was up there way too long. They construct an image. They worship that image. They say, this is the image that delivered us. God, of course, sees it all. He, He calls Moses, watch this. He calls Moses into a closed door meeting and he says to Moses, Moses, here's the deal. I'm out. I'm out. But here's what I'm gonna do for you. I'm going to still, because I promised, I'm going to let you get into the promised land. You will get the benefits, you will get the blessings, you just won't get me. And you won't have to be bothered with a relationship with me. Now, let me just send you a quick text message. Somebody in this room would have jumped on that. If God were to say to you, I'm going to give you the desires of your heart. You know, I've been talking to you, Brian, about this issue over and over again. You've, you, you've just been sinning over and over again. I'm out, Brian. I, here's the deal. I'm going to give you the desires of your heart. You can have the car. You can have the money. You can have the notoriety. You can be the New York Times bestselling author. You can have all that stuff just without me. Some of us would have jumped on that. But I love Moses. Moses says, no, if your presence is not going with us, I don't want to go. Here's Moses. He's saying, God, more than your gifts, I want you the giver. Is that your heart? Is is that really your heart? Like, Like, if you get nothing else but you have God, are you good? If he never answers yes to another one of your prayer requests, are you good? Then Moses ups the ante. He says, show me your glory. And God responds by saying, Moses, you've been smoking. <laughs> no one can see my glory and live. But here's what I'll do, Moses. I'll, I'll, I'll take a selfie. And I'll put a dark filter on it. And I'll give you a glimpse. So he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock, puts a dark filter over the selfie, He walks by Moses, and what does Moses see? Here it is again, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. This is who I am. Three quick things here. This text is in the context of Israel's sin, which means this. We don't have grace or mercy without sin. Grace and mercy exist because my sin exists. Would you think about that? If there was perfection, grace and mercy is not needed. When we get to heaven, We will not need new doses of grace and mercy. We'll have glorified bodies. We've gotten in by grace and mercy, but where there's sin, grace and mercy exists. His name was John Newton. He used to sail the West Coast shores of Africa. He was in the 1700s. He commandeered a slave ship called the Greyhound. He 
captured slaves. He packed them in under inhumane conditions. He sailed them through the middle passage. He sold them into bondage. Until one day God got a hold of his heart. He's reading Thomas Akempis' book, The Imitation of Christ. Gave his life to Jesus. He became a pastor. Later on in life, John Newton said these words. Will you look at them with me? An old man, he says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Those two things go together. Self-righteous people have spiritual amnesia. They forget the depths of their sin. That's why it is always good to glance at the rearview mirror of your journey with Jesus. Never forget from whence he saved you. Don't stare at the rearview mirror. There's a reason why your rearview mirror is smaller than your windshield. You glance at it, it gives you perspective as you move forward. It's helpful. But always glance at what God saved you from. It keeps you humble. And it's no... It's no kind of illusion that John Newton would become the greatest songwriter on grace there ever was because he never lost touch with his sin. Grace and mercy exist, friends, because sin exists. And someone's here tonight or you're online and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I want you to understand that no matter what it is you've done, God in his all-knowingness, he's seen it, he's seen every sin you've ever done, will ever do, and are doing, and he still says, my grace is sufficient for you, it is covered. God is never surprised by our sins. He's never put off. His grace is sufficient. Friends, I also want to, tell us as Christians that if grace is what makes Christianity stand out, then a Christian who goes the way of cancel culture is an oxymoron. Christians must resist this foolishness of cancel culture. We are people of grace. Now that bleeds into my second point. Well, Brian, okay, help me understand that then. Does grace mean you just kind of turn your head and everybody gets a pass? Does grace mean there aren't any consequences? Our text speaks to that. Listen to this, verse seven. God says, this is who I am, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You know what he's saying here? There's gonna be consequences. Grace is not the absence of consequences. In fact, one of the ways I know God loves me and cares about me is that he is willing to discipline me. I didn't think you'd shout on that. (laughs) Hebrews 12 says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
The worst thing I could ever do to my son, Jaden, he didn't like holding my hand when we lived in New York City, crossing a street. The worst thing I could do is, hey, Jaden, you do you. But because I love him, I tighten the grip. So grace is not the absence of consequences. Well, what is grace then? The whole thing gets kicked off because Moses, in a very Christ-like posture, is pleading with God, don't leave. Your presence is everything. We're dead in the water if you don't go with us. Who cares if I have a 6,000 square foot home but you're not in the vicinity. Who cares? So what does God do? He appears. The text says, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud. Don't miss this. In the wilderness, how did God lead them? Pillar of fire by night. When you saw that pillar of fire move, it was time. Kids, do the dishes. We're out of here. During the day, it was a pillar of cloud by day. When you saw that pillar of cloud move, you moved. It was the presence of God. When they erected the tabernacle and God smiled down on it, he filled it with a cloud so that the priest couldn't even stand to minister. The same thing happened in the temple. After they built the temple, God's presence was there in the form of a cloud. God's presence is there. And what do we see in our text? Moses is saying, God, you can't leave. God shows up. How does he show up? He shows up in a cloud. Here he is saying, my presence will go with you. So even though you failed, here's grace. Grace is not the absence of consequences. Grace is, even though you've given me justification to throw you to the side, I'll never do that to you. I'm going to show up. Even in the midst of your failure, which means this, grace and mercy don't just exist because my sin exists, Grace and mercy secures my relationship with God. You never have to worry about God leaving you. You may have worried about your father leaving you, but God ain't your earthly dad. He's better than that. That's why David said, when mother and father forsake me, it is the Lord who will take me up. His presence will never leave you. So don't project onto God the flightiness of earthly man. God's presence is always with you. A couple quick analogies, and then I'll wrap it up with my third point. True stories told of a, of, a, of a girl, Philip Yancey talks about her in one of his books. She, she was obstinate. She was rebellious from the time she was a little girl, strong-willed, gave her parents grief there in their home in Michigan. This continued on their teenage years until one day she decided, I'm just going to run away. I can't take it anymore. She gets on a bus. She goes to the big city, Detroit. She ends up on drugs, ends up in prostitution. She does that for years. Parents worried sick about her. After a couple of years, she says, man, I think it's time for me to go home. Um, she notifies her folks. I think it's through a telegram. I'm coming home. True story. She gets on a Greyhound bus. She's sitting there. She's kind of rehearsing the scene in her mind. You know, she's caused her parents so much grief. Are they going to even want to see her? 
Are they even going to want to receive her into the house? As she pulls up to the bus station, she sees all of these people, about 50 people there, family and friends with huge placards saying, welcome home. The first one to greet her when she steps off of the bus is her father who is in tears and embraces her and calls her daughter and welcome. You can stay with us. And that story sounds faintly familiar. Read Luke 15. A young brother says to his dad, give me my share of the inheritance now, which was the cultural equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. He takes it to the Las Vegas of his day, squanders it on riotous living, wastes it on prostitutes, ends up in the pig's pen and said, look, I, I, I can maybe go home, not as a son, but as a servant. He's on his way home. His father sees him and does something no respectable Jewish man would ever do, lifts up his robe and runs after his son and embraces him and his son gives him the business proposition, I can come back as a hireling and his dad says, stop it, you're my son, not a servant. But how many of us approach God that way? We mess up, we blow it, and so we think we gotta approach him as just a servant and God is saying, let's get something settled. The DNA test matches. You're my son, you're my daughter because of the blood of Jesus, not by your moral strivings. That never changes. But what about that person, Brian, who hears that and goes, okay, if I'm covered by grace, I can do whatever I want. You don't really understand grace. Grace is not license to sin. It is a stimulus to holiness. When I really understand grace, that Jesus paid it all, I want to worship him. I want to be generous. I want to be in his word because his grace is sufficient. Thirdly, as we go home, Grace covers every area of my life. You know, I was at the doctor's office the other day, and you walk into my doctor's office, and something tells me it's the same way with your doctor's office. You walk into my doctor's office, the first thing you see is on his wall, literally, you walk through the door, the wall facing the doorway. The first thing you see is his degrees, his board certification stuff. First thing you see is any uh, uh, accolades or awards. Chances are that's what's happening at your doctor's office. Now, why do they do that? They're not being narcissistic. They're not being prideful. What they're saying is, here's my resume. I am more than qualified to handle your brokenness. You know what our text is? It's the resume of God. It is God saying, listen, here's who I am. I am the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. I am more than qualified to handle whatever brokenness you may have. Did you know this text is repeated verbatim over seven times in the Old Testament? This is not a one-off text. Over seven times in the Old Testament, this text is repeated verbatim. And it's repeated in different circumstances. Let me just give you four of them. 
As we close, one of them is in Nehemiah. The people are overwhelmed by the call. They've been called to repair the wall, and so they're doing the work, and they're overwhelmed. And as they're doing the work of repairing the wall, they are reminded of their own sin and how they had broken faithfulness with God. And in the midst of kind of being overwhelmed with the call of repairing the wall and the brokenness of their own sin, this is what they say as they are doing the work. Look at it with me. Nehemiah 9.17, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Ever feel overwhelmed in God's call on your life? Ever feel your own inadequacy? God's grace and mercy covers that. Not only does it cover my work, it covers my emotions. Psalm 86 here is David, read Psalm 86, he's, he's, he's overwhelmed by the situation he's in, there's, there's fear, there's depression, there's attacks on his life, and what does he say in the midst of all of this? But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, you need to remind yourself of that. We've all been there, haven't we? Overwhelmed by life and yes, sit with a counselor, but make sure you sit with the wonderful counselor and be reminded of his mercy and grace. Or how about Jonah 4? Here's Jonah, he's called by God to, to bring the good news to the people of Nineveh who were some of the most gruesome, vile people of their day, they literally were oppressing the people of God. And we understand for some of us who've heard the story of, of Jonah that he runs away from God. I love it. Jonah 4, this is Jonah t- telling God, here's why I ran away. And he prayed to the Lord and, Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a great is God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God, I knew you would save these people, these vile people. I knew your grace and mercy wasn't just for them, for me, it's for them as well. Ever, ever been praying for someone's salvation in your life? Bad theology, but, and they're like a, a sinner, sinner. And, and as you're praying, there's there's this subconscious thing in which you're going, yeah, right? Friends, if God's mercy and grace can reach down to Assyrians, God can cover and save anyone that you come in contact with. His grace and mercy is sufficient. I was just talking to someone earlier today. I, 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 talking to someone earlier today, and they were just telling me, telling me there's, there. Their testimony, it just blew me away. Someone in this church saying, look, I I was doing doctoral work and my doctoral thing was disproving Christianity and as part of that I had to go to different churches and here I am doing doctoral work to disprove Christianity and I'm at church one Sunday and I get saved. Don't you ever underestimate the grace of God. Salvation is the greatest miracle ever. Finally, it covers our sin. Joel 2, look at it with me. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. 
return to the Lord your God. Why? I, I just have this picture. You've blown it. You've relapsed back into drugs. You've relapsed back into alcohol. You've, you're back on porn. You had the one night stand, the gossip, the being funny with the money. You've, you've done the thing and, and, and the spirit of God is convicting you. And God says, return to me, return to me. And what is his posture when you return to him? For he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. He's not waiting to beat you up. What what do we do when our kids are learning to walk? You just... I just remember our kids are learning to walk, right? Your, your kids are learning to walk, and they're taking their first couple steps. You're like, hey, man, get, get the phone. Let's, let's get on Instagram Live. Let's, let's, let's stream this bad boy. First couple of steps, and then they fall. Here's what you don't do. Idiot. <laughs> just like your mama. <laughs> no, you don't do that. You... You rush in with tenderness. Let's try it again. Get back up. That's what a loving father does. God's not waiting on you with a belt in his hand and going, idiot. He says, return to me. Open arms. I think all of the Christian life is a perpetual returning. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. What gets us into the kingdom, friends, is what keeps us in the kingdom. Grace and mercy is not just the diving board, it's the pool. We swim in those waters every single day. So, Father, I bless you. I believe right now, under the sound of my voice, your spirit has been messing with people. There's just just been this thing on our hearts. The Spirit's been saying, that's you, that's that's you, that's you. And as those who've been designated to just be available for prayer come, I want to invite them to come join me. We We stand here as representatives of God. We're not God, but we stand here in a posture of mercy and grace. Maybe you're here and you haven't given your heart and life to Christ. You haven't surrendered to him. We want to invite you to come. Or maybe you're here and, man, I've I've been there and probably will be there again. There's just seasons and stretches in our life. Man, we're just living life according to the flesh. 
We're, we're just living in sin. And God's spirit has been messing with you. Joel says, return to me. I'm waiting with mercy and grace.